own reading of the book of Revelation. And moreover, I hope it will help you put the Gospels into context with it um, so that they're not seen as separate works. It doesn't belong to the Old Testament. It's a New Testament reading. And it just does not fit with so many of the attitudes that Christians bring to their faith today, Catholic or Protestant. You know that one of my concerns through this whole thing is that within our church, there is this Protestant or tendency to, to look at things in black and white terms, to see the world through black and white eyes. Um, when we're not in a black and white world, final ends, I mean, if you remember Dante, Dante put us in a black and white world. Hell, heaven and hell are black and white, they're final ends. But we're in between, we're on our way, so we've got final ends behind us that ask for us to use our minds. Um, education is fundamental to the Catholic faith, absolutely fundamental to it. Um, it's a support to our faith. On, a, on an interesting note, I think, I, I hope you guys will find this intriguing, interesting. Over at Elizabeth and Seton, we've been, you know, doing the same thing that we started out with here, but after we did Lewis's Abolition of Man and Chesterton's Orthodoxy, I thought it would be good for them, because I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this. Um, after the hospitalization, I got really concerned about time. So I thought we would take a break and do Matthew and, um, and John and Revelation there, and also do abolition of man and uh, orthodoxy. But I talked with Father, and they're making uh, an announcements to open it up to the congregation, and I'm going to include in that reading list two works which we did not do together, and I'm actually sorry we didn't. The two works that I'm going to do are John Paul's Fide Ratio, which was one of the most important encyclicals in his papacy, Fide Ratio. We're doing it. I would love to have you guys join us. Faith and Reason. John Paul saw that it was ap that the Catholic Church was in a crisis precisely for the reasons we've been talking about. It, um, it is given, it is surrendered reason over to the non-believing world. Um, Pope Benedict gave the Regenberg address, and in that, in that address, I, I think it's one of the most important documents of the 20th century. In that, in that address he gave in Germany, he basically took this position, that the modern Christian fundament, fundamentalist, and he included in that lots of Catholics, and the Muslim are undermining their faith by denying the logos, reason, in the world. And their tendency is to slip into black-white mindsets. Well, um, both talks set the Christian world on edge. John Paul for different reasons, but Benedict for obvious reasons. The, the Muslim world was terribly upset with him, and the Christian world was terribly upset with him. Because both of them were recognizing the importance of reason in the modern world and the way the Christian takes it for granted. So both documents are making a large, hospitable place for reason well used. Because as everybody knows, reason can be used really badly. Um, Aristotle's term, the church's term, is right reason. That so many people don't use reason in a good way. And as a matter of fact, they do more harm because so often the reason they do use is not good. So, 
Um, that's one of the crises of our time that both of those popes um, addressed. In the book of Revelation, we've got a particular problem because, um, and you, you, you're in a good position because you've seen this now. In Dante, remember, Dante was dealing with final ends, with final things. It was an eschatological vision. We had the world as it will be in heaven and hell. Even though he was on his way, that's why it was so important for him to take that journey. John Paul knew that. Um, we saw in the Gospel of John that um, there's nothing that John presented that did not involve some sense of his father in his kingdom. So the Gospel of John is different from the Synoptic Gospels in bringing a metaphysical view into the way he presents everything. In me you see the Father, if you knew the Father you'd know me, you don't love me, it means you don't love the Father, you don't even know him. I mean over and over and over again he made those arguments. He was teaching the disciples and correcting the Pharisees and the scribes because they all would not, they would not open to that. They would not hear. So one of the complications of John is that he asks us to look at things as they are in the world but set them against a metaphysical backdrop, anotherworldly, a final ends backdrop involving his father. His father was always with him. In the book of Revelation, now we're practically out of the world. What the prophet gives us in the book of Revelation is a vision of final ends. It's exactly what, I mean, it was an example for Dante. He's showing us final things as they are in their kingdom, and that means almost everything he does is symbolic. He doesn't start with things here, which has been a fundamental principle of everything we've done. Or he doesn't even start with things here as John did in his gospel. He's starting with a vision of another world. So it's highly symbolic, it's difficult to read, um, and it asks real care on our part, because we don't have the support of our senses. There's nothing we can turn to in the world. We're left in a world that seems, in a large way, symbolic or allegorical. Was that clear? Is, are you guys following this sort of broad commentary of one of the problems that we're dealing with in our time and one of the problems we deal with with um, um, the book of Revelation? You're all quiet. Fred, you look you look like you're. If I do, you have questions about what I just said? No, I'm good. Barbara. Um, no questions. I'm waiting for the rest of the yeah. Right, right, yeah. Stop talking, Dr. Alexander. And get going. Sevens. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, well, it's going to be interesting to see what you guys think about what we're doing. Anyway, so um, what I'd like to do is plan on doing Revelation in two meetings, maybe three, but I do, I do not want to um, draw this out. Um, it's not my purpose. I, I'm not going to go into it as a scholar. I don't have the theological background. Um, I think I do have some things that will help, and I don't want to push beyond that because um, I don't have the expertise or the the background to go into it in any greater depth. For that, you're going to have to go elsewhere, okay? Um, a couple of more practical things. Um, what I'd like to do is 
try to get through this in two weeks, take a third if we need to. They, I'm, I hope to make these short meetings. Um, you know how good I am at that. <laughs> um, Mark's laughing. Um, he should. He should. Um, and what I'd like to do after that is this. For those of you who want to join, um, we can stop after this, but I think some of you want to go ahead. What I'd like to do is do Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, because I think it's a great, great literary work, and Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. They are not, they, they do not speak as directly to our concern, but they are literature and they're a good way to end. I thought we could do um, Faulkner's The Reavers just to put some pressure on Karen and see what she thinks about Faulkner's syntax and his use of grammar and is Bring it on. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. Good for you. The funny thing, Karen. I mean, he—you're not going to encounter any of what you experienced, you know, in some of those books earlier. But it was his last work. It's a comic work. It's a—it's a wonderful, wonderful story. If any of you have not seen the movie, The Reavers, you should rent the movie. What I thought we would do is, instead of reading the book, going through the book as a book, encouraging everybody to read it. It's a good read but end the course with the movie. So we'll approach it the way we did Fellowship. So what I'd like to do is Dickens' Great Expectation, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, they're just two fine pieces of literature, and um, end with the movie The Reavers, um, which is a delightful, delightful movie. And on that day, if it's possible, schedule it so that everybody can be here and we'll have a potluck the way we did when we saw Departures when we watch that movie together. So that's my, that's my, that's my um, schedule, that's my proposal, and those of you who want to finish that way, be glad to finish that way with you, but that's what I'd like to do. What I'd like to do after these meetings with Revelations is take a month off. It'll give those of you who um, have trouble reading, or would have trouble, I, Mark, I was watching you shake your head with all of those, Give you plenty of no, time. Jane Austen. I will, <laughs> I, not read, I will not read Jane Austen. <laughs> give give those give those of you who have any difficulties time to read, and also give me a break because during that period I'm going to be doing Fide Orazio, John Paul's Fide Orazio, and um, Ratzinger's Benedict Dress, and I've done neither of those, and they're both really important. They're, they're, I think they're two of the most important cyclicals of the 20th century. And I need to be very serious in what I'm doing with them, so I, I want to be careful of my time. Anyway, that's what we'll do, okay? So Dickens and Austin, they don't speak directly to what we've been doing, but they are they're extraordinary works, um, and I think they're both enjoyable works. So um, let's start. Any any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? Wow. Okay, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This day, Monday. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, um, for the gift of yourself this morning at Mass. Um, the readings this weekend were remarkable. Paul reminded us that
um, that our bodies are a great glory to us, but it's also um, um, they they present a problem because if we do not take care of them, they can lead to our own destruction. Um, he was really clear and guarded about the possibilities. We are not angels. We're not animals. We're humans. Christ thought enough of our human nature to take it on to redeem us. Not the angels, not not animals, us. So there's some great glory that we have as human beings that we God made us in his image. So the readings this weekend spoke directly to the body. Um, um, Debbie keeps trying to get in. I'm just... Um, Doc! Can you call Debbie? She's tried to get in several times now. Sorry, you guys. I don't know what's... She's she's blinked on a couple of times and disappears. Can you call her and see if you can offer some help? Here she is again. Here. I don't know what's going on. Sorry, you guys. Um, yeah. Um. In the gospel reading, um, we were given the. Um, the account of the trans the transfiguration and we were reminded of what a glorious thing the body is and got some glimpse of a kind of glory that we almost can't imagine that our bodies will be transformed um, um, we will be who we are and somehow amazingly uplifted and changed transformed so I ask for a special blessing for all of us particularly in this time of Lent to seriously take on our nature, our bodies, our, you know, whatever we struggle with. Um, 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 help us in our efforts during this Lent to, um, to deny ourselves, to put away those things within us that are not good. The larger ones are not physical, they're spiritual, but they directly affect our body, what we do. But our real care is spiritual and what we do inside. So. Help us, please, in the efforts that we're making during this Lent. Um, I ask for a special blessing on Mike and Megan. We just heard the news yesterday that they're pregnant. It's just They just were recently married. It was not a small thing for them. It was a glorious moment. So surround them with your blessing. Um, um, protect Megan in her pregnancy. Keep her safe. Keep the baby safe and healthy. Um, be with... Um, um, God. Um, sorry, the names escape me. Um, um, be with all of those couples who are trying to conceive um, and those who are having difficulties. We really want to bring life into the world. Um, Justin and Abby, particularly. And we ask for a special blessing on all those we love. I know that people are caring concerns in their hearts, even though nobody's speaking them tonight, but um, bless all of those people that we carry inside of us that um, we're being silent about right now. And I ask for a special blessing on the last couple of weeks of this work on the Bible. Um, it's serious work. Um, we can't read the Synoptic Goptals without seeing Christ do everything he can to teach. Um, almost every scene shows him teaching through a parable. 
he wants his disciples to grow closer to him and constantly trying to correct the Jews, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who would not, would not hear. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear you, to make a place for you, particularly where it's not easy for us. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I think we finished Dry Sauvages last week, didn't we? I'm going to start Little Gidding. Every one of the quartets, is, remember, it's had a different setting, a different historical setting. It was set concretely in the world, in some place that's real, that had a, hist a history behind it. Little Gidding is another place, and each quartet was a different voice of four voices. Remember, four quartets. So it's like a musical quartet. Each one was a different voice, a different instrument, playing a different theme. And here, Eliot starts in midwinter spring. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a moment in a season that's out of season. And yet in the middle of that season, something enters it. It's a little bit like our lives. You know, that sometimes something's going on in our lives and something breaks into it. And often it's a violence. Something we wish were otherwise and isn't. But oftentimes it's a grace. And sometimes we don't see it as a grace. Eliot's doing something that I've never seen a poet in the whole of our tradition do. Um, he's trying to describe a moment in, in midwinter spring when um, midwinter, when the ice is frozen, it's like a spring moment bring cuts in and the ice melts, the sun is there, and you feel like you're out of season for just a moment and you're in another season. There are four distinct seasons spring, summer, um, fall, and winter. And in this instance, during a season, one of the seasons, something out of season breaks in. And he means it literally. We're not supposed to do what people do allegorizing and get into a black and white mind. It's an actual moment in time. But he's so precise about what he's showing is that he makes us aware that something else is going on um, that's worth being mindful about, okay? So each one of the quartets has given us a different theme. This one gives us yet one more, okay? I'm just going to read the opening section, and then we'll pick up um, next time and, and continue um, as long as we can together, okay? You remember the apophatic has been an important concern of Eliot's all along, that the apophatic is the is that condition that the mystics encounter, that the only way to get to it is by getting rid of it. So it's when nothing is there that something appears. He makes it present. Um, <clears throat> so remember all the, all the phrases where it's here and not here, always and now, um, where and um, where I can't say. And he's picking up that same theme here in the way he um, the way he describes this midwinter season event, okay. Little Gidding, 
Um, little Gidding. Midwinter spring is its own season, sempiternal though sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic, when the short day is brightest with frost and fire. The brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless cold that is the heart's heat, reflecting in a watery mirror a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. A glow more intense than blaze of branch or brazier stirs the dumb spirit. No wind but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. Between melting and freezing the soul sap quivers. There is no earth smell or smell of living thing. This is the springtime, but not in time's covenant. Now the hedgerow is blanched for an hour with transitory blossom of snow, a bloom more sudden than that of summer, neither budding nor fading, nor in the scheme of generation. Where is the summer? The unimaginable zero summer. If you cannot come this way, taking the route you would be likely to take from the place you would be likely to come from, if you came this way in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May with voluptuous sweetness. It would be the same at the end of the journey if you came at night like a broken king, if you came by day not knowing what you came for. Um, if you came this way, taking the route you would be likely to take from the place you would be likely to come from. If you came this way in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May. With voluptuary sweetness, it would be the same at the end of the journey. If you came at night like a broken king, if you came by day not knowing what you came for, it would be the same. When you leave the rough road and turn behind, pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks only when it's fulfilled, if at all. Either you had no purpose or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. There are other places which also are the world's end, some at the sea jaws, or over a dark lake, or a desert, or a city. But this is the nearest in place and time, now and in England. Um, think about the kings um, in, during the Reformation and afterwards when kings were executed or a king was defeated, you know, and had to walk away in defeat, um, or even a president take. Eliot has that illusion that... Um, of, of somebody broken in power. If you came this way taking any route starting from anywhere at any time or at any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid and prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying. 
and what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you, being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. Remember, I've been saying for such a long time now, I mean, it's the one of the best ways that I can put it. Um, when we take the Eucharist and we walk outside to our car, we've got Christ in us and our faith is that we're with him in his kingdom. He's with us. He's in us. We're with him. We are with him. You know that the nature of the Trinity is indwelling. They dwell one with another. In, in John's gospel, he keeps saying, the Father's in me and I am in him and you are in me. We should have been or should be. If we're on our way to the car after the Eucharist, where are we? Are we just on the way to the car? Or are we there and someplace else? This, if you live with the Eucharist, if you live in faith, our faith always locates us here. It's supposed to locate us here with the cross. That's where we are. I'll read the last lines again and then just leave them to yourself. You say, you're not here to justify yourself, to do all this stuff. You're not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you, being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. Okay. Okay. Barbara, you're going to lead this opening on Revelation, right? <laughs> okay, let's start. A lot of Revelation before, and I was so confused that... Yeah. Well, join the club. I don't know that my age has helped at all. <laughs> I don't know that I wanna, Oops, sir. better. I want to do a very quick review of John's Gospel. I, I wanted to write a note to you, and I still, next week I will write a note going back to John. I just, I, I couldn't this last week. Remember, if you've got the outline from tonight, um, John sees the Logos everywhere. You cannot read John's Gospel without seeing the Word. It begins, in the beginning is the Word. The Logos. The Word. It means God, or the Word, or... God in the world. The Logos is present everywhere. Um, repeatedly he gave images of it related to night. He talked about purifying, the Lamb taking on men's sins. He offered signs constantly of another world. Um, we covered all of those. We went through them. They're on my notes. Um, turning water into wine, healing the official son, the, the young man that had been born blind. You can go on and on. The raising of Lazarus, Lazarus, Christ himself raised. There were all those 
episodes um, involving Christ saying, I am, I am, I am, in me you see. They, they stand in remarkable contrast to um, the synoptics because the synoptics don't do that. The synoptic gospels are full of events, lots of them. There are sometimes too numerous to count. In John, I think there's only seven or eight events. And in each one of them, John uses what's taking on, or Christ uses what's what he's involved with as a way of making clear who he is. And he, he, he makes it clear that who he is involves his father in another order. His father is present to him. That's why he can do the things he does, because that kingdom is present to him then. Who sees it? Not very many right away, and some eventually do, very clearly. Um, we said that um, John makes clear that Christ is fully human, fully divine. We went through those episodes where he has to make a change in what he thought he'd come to do. You know, making it clear that it wasn't like his father where he could see everything and knew everything in advance. Things caught him off guard. Um, and we see um, the effects of that. Sometimes we see an impatience. I remember just numerous times when he, his words to the disciples were, how long do I have to put up with you? you know, um, He's fully human, fully divine. Um, and we ended with, <clears throat> with that question that I asked about what John was doing. Did he stage that ending? Because the ending of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very different from the ending of John. It's almost as if he creates a literary work Two disciples follow, John rushes ahead, Peter gets there last, he goes in first, they return, Mary stays, she weeps, Christ speaks to her. Um, it's so symbolic, and I remember asking, is he staging it? What's going on? How do we understand what's going on? Suzanne's answer to it I, I thought was um, really good. Um, she said, whatever's going on in the way of differences among the four Gospels, What's going on in John contains all the bones. The bones are all there. The substance is there. Even if there are differences in details, as there would be for anybody describing an event because people see things differently, the bones, the essence of things, are there. The essence is real. But John, throughout his gospel, has a sense of an allegorical level of meaning, that there are additional levels of meaning to things. And he writes that into his gospel. He always brings the two together. That was a major point of our reading, that the, the kingdom of his father is always present. In me you see the father, father's here. If you loved him, you'd know me. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why the early church fathers tended to read the Revelation, the book of Revelation, as being told by John. But lots of evidence... Um, has come to light to suggest otherwise. I'm not going to take a stand here. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get us derailed. Uh, for the longest time, it was, it was thought that the author of John was the apostle, but that's no longer the church. I mean, um, the no longer the case, and the church doesn't come down on that. Um, there's too much evidence raising questions otherwise. Um, so here's some background things on on Revelation that I think are worth keeping in mind. 
if we move from John the Gospel to uh, the book of Revelation. The Synoptic Gospels were written between 65 and 110 AD. John, John wrote his Gospel, we think, around 30, sometime shortly after Christ's um, resurrection, sometime between 30 and 100. They, they can't be precisely pinpointed. Um, but there are, there's evidence in lots of the writing. There's a, there's a remark in John's letter where he refers to a heresy that was dated around 90 AD. So um, the evidence suggests that, that the, um, John was written somewhere between Christ's resurrection and 100. We don't know when. Um, what we do know is that the, is that the prophet who's, who's giving us the book of Revelation um, receives a revelation from Christ. Um, the language isn't the same. Even the structure of the language is not the same as we get it in the Gospel of John. But he is receiving a revelation from Christ. Um, the language is very different. It's highly symbolic. It's far more symbolic than the language you get in the Gospel of John. He says at the opening of the revelation to John, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. Now hold on to that. What must soon take place. He's giving a revelation about things that are about to happen. And to be made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, He's been called out to write down this vision that was given to him. It's a supernatural vision. It's not like the synoptics or even the Gospel of John. He's not in time as we know it. He's not walking with Jesus through events. He's not recording those events. He's receiving a vision from Christ, and he's been asked to write it down and give it to peoples. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. So twice there, what's soon to take place, and for what is near, what's about to happen. So it's left people who take these things seriously. What did he mean? To whom does this apply? Um, does it still apply to our age? Um, so, um, it was written sometime between 30 and 100 or so, or afterwards. Um, most of the people who read the word treated it as prophetic and apostolic. They thought it was John. Um, lots of people don't treat it that way. Luther believed it was neither. Lots of the Reformation thinkers thought the book of Revelation was neither prophetic nor apostolic. And it, they didn't include it in their list of canonical works. Um, I want to just say because, I, I mean, just because we're gonna, I'm going to try to cover general things today. One of the interesting things for me as I read it um, was how dark it is. When I think about the modern tendency to make Christ a buddy, you know, he's this nice guy, he's, he's so compassionate and tolerant. I mean, I've already spoken to that as much as I could. Christ is condemning right and left. I mean, in so many of the parables, he's sticking people in a prison and telling them they're not going to come out and sending people gnashing their teeth away. 
there's a side of Christ that's very, very severe. He's pretty serious. And I've spoken to this before. He makes it clear that hell is real. You know, so if anybody goes to Christ thinking they're going to find a nice guy, or that we define Christ by his niceness, we're confusing things. One of, the, one of the qualities of the modern age is that people think by being nice, we'll have a better world. I myself don't think that's true. I think very often when people are nice, they're, doing, they're avoiding problems. You know, they're not dealing with things. Book of Revelation gives us a very, very dark vision. It's stark. For three quarters of this book, we, we get images of God virtually destroying humans. Right and left. Plagues, scorpions, beasts um, are um, destroying human beings right and left. It's a dark, forbidding uh, vision. Um, The book of Revelation draws heavily on Old Testament writings and apocalyptic writings. It's rich from apocalyptic writings at the time. And you can imagine that that they would have been a part of the Jewish tradition. They were. Apocalyptic writings were a part of the Jewish tradition before Christ came. Because there was this strong sense that there would be a Messiah coming and would utterly change things. Well, imagine what would happen after Christ came. We've talked about this. Luke makes such a point of it. He says, that's the beginning of Luke. I'm here to straighten things out because there have been so many writings about what happened. I want to tell you the truth. So the religious writings were voluminous. There are all this apocrypha, these false writings that were not canonical and lots of apocalyptic writings. John draws on both of those traditions, the Old Testament, the apocalyptic writings. The language of Revelation is full of that language and things drawn. Um, The most important prophets or sources for him are Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Those are the dominant ones, the prophetic ones. And he draws from the Psalms. But I think it's Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Isaiah who who are the ones that we encounter most often. Um... One of the things I think it's important for us to be mindful of when we read it, the Protestant world either denies the canonical status of Revelation, or it turns, us in, it, turns it into something else. Lots of Protestant writers see Revelation in terms of a dis, um, dispensa, um, dispensationalism, that there's this, um, these dispensation, these time periods that, that they think have already passed or will pass according to their reading of Revelation. So it's not uncommon to, for, to hear people say that we're in the last thousand years of the, um, of the periods that the book of Revelation um, tells us are coming. Um, there, are, um, there are constant uses of colors, of metals, of clothing, um, I don't want to go into the sim- symbolism of any of them. Um, if any of you wants to raise a question, go ahead and raise it while we're doing it, but I don't want to take those on. I'm, I'm more concerned about other things. Numbers are really important. The, the number 24, the number 4, um, 7, 144,000, 12 um, are all important numbers. T- um, 1,260 is repeated often. That number represents the number of days. In, it's a symbolic number 
stands generally stands for traditionally in this in this tradition that we're working in for a period of war they refer to it as 42 months or 1260 days but there are all these things that have symbolic um, meaning I want to wait on the number 12 because you know from your reading that you almost can't read Revelation and not be hit over the head with a number 12 it's going to be manger to what I'm going to suggest in a minute, so I'm going to wait on it. Um, the Rome that they talk about is an image of Babylon. And the whore of Babylon is the papacy. That's a strong tendency to come out of the Reformation. That's the way that the Protestant world tends to read Revelation. Um, Rome is the corrupt city of the world. It's where the devil um, vests his power. And the papacy is the Antichrist. It's where the forces against Christ have been gathered. The tendency was to see the Catholic Church in that light. Um, um, one last thing before I get to one of my first questions. You remember, I hope you remember, from our reading of the Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey, we read the early in the Odyssey, that um, two of the greatest temptations that Homer face or Odysseus faces is from female archetypes. The feminine archetype represented a serious threat to Odysseus and his homecoming. The two things he had to deal most with were the powers of women. Circe was one of them, Calypso was another. Remember he was on Circe's island for a year. She's an image of that sexual um, power a woman has over a man because of the sexual attraction. Calypso was different. Odysseus was on her island weeping for eight, eight and a half years. Or eight years. Eight or eight and a half years. Much, much longer time. She's an image of that spiritual power that a woman possesses over a man. He grieved. He wanted to get home. Remember, Calypso offered him immortality, that he could stay with her forever. Odysseus refused it because he knew it would be against his nature. His nature was to go home, to be with his wife. So he was facing a temptation presented in this feminine archetype. Her name was Calypso. If you remember what we did back then, the word Calypso means hidden, darkness, a hole. It's close to the sources of our word for hell. Um, she's what keeps a man hidden. It's a tendency in a woman to be possessive. Um, remember, Odysseus wants to get home because one of the most important things in that Homeric world is that each man has to realize his own honor. Whatever it is that he's called on to do, it, it may be fighting a war, whatever it is he's called on to do, it. he has to be faithful to his integrity as a man. She presented an obstacle, a temptation to that, to hide him. So the, the Homeric ideal in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, remember, was for a man to come out of the pack, out of the swarm, to fight a battle, to do battle with these things. Calypso offered him um, security, comfort, a way not to do that. So the word Calypso means to hide, to conceal. She was in a cave, remember. The word apocalypse, apocalypso, that's what the apocalypse means. 
Is everybody following? Apocalypse means apocalypse, calypso, to come out of hiding. The book of Revelation is bringing hidden things out into the open. So in some sense, the apocalypse would be a better name, although we talked about it as the book of Revelation. But it means a revelation. It's bringing things out of the darkness into the light. Those things that were secret, that involved the mysteries of God, that only God can see into the light. That's why John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He's revealing something God wants us to see. Things that are about to, there's a prophetic element. Um, So, but let me take a break here. Those are just some general background things that um, that that uh, may be important or interesting to look at. I've got one serious question before we look at the book itself, and I, it should probably wait until next week. But I want to at least put it out there for people to think about. Um, the Protestant world tends to read the Book of Revelation very differently from a Catholic world. Why is that? It's the same book. Same words to both peoples. Um, anybody offer a thought? Does anybody have a thought? Fred, you you've got experience in both worlds. Um, I I know you take I know you take the Bible seriously, and I I know you take living it seriously. So, and you've got a you've got a if I remember correctly, you've got a Baptist background behind you, and you've got a you know you entered a Catholic world. You have any thoughts on on this question of What's behind the the two different ways of reading the Book of Revelation? I I don't know because I have to be honest. I've I've read Revelation as a Baptist and I've read Revelation as a Catholic. It's, it's the same book, <laughs> and I I I come away pretty much the same way, regardless of Christian background. So. Probably can't help you too much on this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's an easy question. I, I think it's a terribly, terribly difficult question. And it gets so naughty because it goes to two faiths that are deep and complex. So, anybody else? Any? Karen, I always find myself a little bit reluctant to ask you a question because you're at the beach and I don't want to disturb you. You look so comfortable with that sun and beach behind you. Anybody? Karen, Mark, Barbara, or Debbie? Are you and um, and Tracy? Are you? Can you guys show yourself? I, I hope you're here. I know Debbie or Debbie, if you can hear me. I know you're having trouble getting on. I I wish I could have been more help, but Tracy, I'm Debbie, are you guys with I'm us? Here. Yeah, you can't. I have my video on. You can't see it. No, I can't. Does everybody see Debbie? Yeah. Well, oh, you guys do. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy talking and I see her. And oh, wow. Can you see me? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Oh, there, there's uh, there's Debbie. Um, Tracy's there, too. Funny, I don't have you guys. Um, oh, there you are. You suddenly... Either of you want to um, offer any... I, it's, I, know, I, don't, I don't want to put anybody in the spot. Don't feel like you... I just think it's a... It's terribly interesting because it goes to a question of our faith, and I hope to offer something a little bit um, that will at least offer a thought on it next week. But anybody, Tracy, 
Nope. Tracy, by the way, it's good to see you again. Yeah, we missed you. Um, okay. Let's go. What is that? Oh. Um, here's what I'd like to do just to get us going. You know that three quarters of revelation is taken up with um, specific kind of revelations. There's three particular kinds of visions. The first one involves seals, or wait, Book of Revelation opens with letters sent to the seven churches. And following that, where John identifies his mission and what he's doing, we have these separate visions. One of them involves the opening of the seals to the seven churches. So we get seven very different seals. Um, after the seals are opened, we get seven trumpets. And the trumpets are God's way of announcing with his authority and power um, his vision on the world. And after the seven trumpets, there are seven bowls. And all of them contain what are basically curses. So just in very simple structural outlines. There's an opening. Um, these um, writings are going to be taken to the seven churches. Um, they're going to be involved. They're going to involve seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. At that point in Revelation, there's going to be a revelation of a dragon, and a war in heaven, and the appearance of Mary, and a new city. So, I just quickly. So, if all of you, I'm, what I'm trying to do is simplify this as much as I can because I think it's a terribly difficult book. So after the opening, we get uh, the letter sent to the churches, followed by the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the bowls. Turn for a moment to um, 12. I'm trying to break this down as simply as I can structurally to give everybody a handle on it. In Revelation 12, it begins, And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And I'm assuming everybody will relate twelve with the twelve tribes of Israel and the symbolic importance of twelve. She was with child, and she cried in her, uh, out her pangs at birth, anguish for delivery, and another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his head. So it's almost as if her birth, this is why, this is why I think Milton did it the way he did. If those of you who did Milton remember that his treatment of God's creation, hold on to this, this was a Protestant reading. This was Milton's reading. His reading in Paradise Lost was that God created earth despite Satan. That was the motive for creation so that Satan wouldn't have one up with him. Okay, Satan comes into existence with um, the coming of Christ. It's like in envy of Christ's birth he's going to wreck destruction over the world. <clears throat> another, um, another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon and seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman 
who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. That's that symbolic period of battle. Um, in 13, a beast comes into existence. Um, in 14, another beast, but the lamb appears. In 15, then I saw another portent in heaven's great and wonderful seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and wonderful is God. Um, 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. That's... Um, um, Babylon is the modern Rome. Babylon is the city against God, down below in 17. Babylon the great mother of harlots and of earth's abomination, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Um, hold on. Go to 21. What I'm trying to do is just a, to give an overview of major parts of Revelation to make it easier to hold on to because there are just too many numbers and too many things going on. Chapter 21 begins. It's one of the most beautiful chapters, I think, in all of literature, and it picks up one of our major themes. You know that from the beginning of our work together, the theme, one of the major themes of every work of literature has been the city. The city is a paradigm. It's a template. The, the movement for the Christian is from the garden to the city. The New Jerusalem is our end. We were always intended to be in the city of God. Our return to God was envisioned in terms of a community, a city. God himself is Trinitarian. He's communal. Our final end was meant to be communal. So here after the appearance of Mary and the dragon and the war in heaven, a war takes place then, we get this image. 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Okay? I hope everybody's hearing this break. Is everybody following? What I'm trying to do is put it almost in terms of a musical movement. From the opening letters, we get these three periods of the seals, the trumpets, and then the bowls. Then the appearance of Mary, the, the war with Satan, the war in heaven, and now, at this point in 21, 
he sees a new earth. The old earth has passed away. Now just to pick this image up while we've got it, because I want to do everything I can to simplify this. Um, um, a city coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling of God. The book ends, if you go to the very end of Revelation, uh, this is 22 verse, say 14. Christ says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right of the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That is, everybody not of the kingdom is outside of it. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. That's Christ, right? He rises with the sun in the morning. The, the word Ama, or what's the word for morning? Ama. It's, that, it's a poetic, it's one of those poetic traditions that the rising stars, it's the song coming in. I'm the, the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, and let whom who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without pre. The last image is of the bride. All right, the spirit and the bride say, come. Christ is saying, come. The spirit and the bride are saying, come. So the book of Revelation ends on this extraordinary call and affirmation. We've, we've had a book full of darkness, but it ends with the bridegroom coming and the bride saying, come, come. Okay, we'll read it when we get to it at the end. What I wanted to do just for a moment is try to lay out in, in broad strokes the whole of Revelation just to help get a handle because I think the, the book by itself is very confusing. So let me stop here for a second. Is everybody clear in the structure? You've got John identifying himself, you've got the letter of the churches, and then you've got these three prophecies, these three visions. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls. Then you've got Mary appearing to, to bring somebody into the world to answer them. God comes to recover his kingdom. There's a war in heaven. The old city is destroyed and we're left with this vision of a new city coming into being. Which to me is, I, just, I, I, I mean, I, I love that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of a heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And that's, that will lead us to the very last passages of the book of Revelation. Now let me stop, because I just, what I wanted to do is try to simplify it. Now I know there's a lot left out there, okay, so we'll, we'll start going through the book a little bit. But is everybody clear in that, or does anybody have any questions about... 
the sort of overall movement or overall structure of the book of Revelation? Everybody's too quiet. Tracy, ask a question. I, you've got to have a question. No? Fred? Or uh, stop, let me stop. Is anybody, what's your response? Let me put it differently. What's your response to this so far? If you just put the book of Revelation together, what's your response at this point? Sorry, Fred. I'm sorry. You go ahead wherever you're going to go. No, that's, that's fine. Go ahead. What's your response, you guys? One other reason I'm doing this is you know that from from what I said a, you know, a month ago when we were doing Matthew and John, that it was a stunning experience for me because I realized how much we don't read the Bible well because we get it in fragments all year round. When we did Ma Matthew, it was amazing to me to put Matthew together to read it as a whole because it made me see things more clearly than I had from all of our readings. And then I read John and he blew me away. I mean, he just literally blew me away to, to see how much John is focused on his father, Christ's father and, you know, the oneness between them was a revelation of a sort to me. And now we're doing the book of Revelation and it's, and it's it, you know, it just, it gets mixed in with things. And yet, what we're getting is a revelation of a world beyond us. It, we're not getting into this world. He's not relating us to this world the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or John do. We're immediately taken to this end times vision. We're not of this world. When we hear the book of Revelation, do we ever see that? Do we ever feel it? Do we ever hear it? You know, it's sort of amazing to read this. No? Yes. What's your response, Doc? Have you you've been reading it? What's your response? I find the whole thing... Can you hear Suzanne? I find the whole thing amazing. Barbara's shaking her head, she can't. I find the whole thing amazing and confusing and full of symbolism that I don't have a grasp on. Um, I think the interesting question is um, there's, I think, I think the Ignatius Bible kind of identifies five different viewpoints on Revelation, but I think you can narrow that down to fundamentally three. There's one group that thinks it's a, a historical documentation of things that have taken place somewhere between 68 AD and say 100 AD or you know or maybe 400 AD with the yeah. fall of the Roman Empire there's a, a, a second group and, and you know you can go in different directions with it but fundamentally it's a timeless work that that describes the ongoing battle between good and evil and it takes us through you know, a, a timeless journey looking at all of the conflicts that have occurred between good and... And then there's a third group which kind of falls into that 
I think he called it the idealistic group, which is where I think I am, is that it's it's past, present, and future. It's 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 a look at, if you will, the evolution of of man, and you know God's you know God's viewpoint of that, and it ultimately takes us to you know the end time. But for me, that the structure isn't so hard to get your arms around. What's what's hard to get your arms around is what is it exactly? <laughs> You know, uh, from the, from an interpretation standpoint of view, and from everything I've read, I, I read Barron's take on it, Ignatius' take on it. There's a, you know, there's tons of books out there trying to make heads or tails, yeah. if you will, yeah. intended yeah. on on the Book of Revelation. And to me, the what I'm really looking forward to here with this group is people's interpretation of exactly what's being depicted yeah 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 good let me let me just jump in on what Fred said um, of those three views and and I'm I'm including myself in the last along Fred and I aren't joining each other here good news um, let me offer my thoughts on it because my reading is and I said it to Suzanne the other way and I wish I could recapture my words um, John is giving us a view of final ends, of a time. So if any of you can, for a minute, um, Mark, I, your hand came, did you have something? I don't see your picture anymore, but your hand is up. Did you have something to say? Oh, is my camera off? I don't, well, I don't see you. I, um, I see your hand, but a hand came up. Did you want to offer something? Well, a, a basic thought this? on Revelation, which is why I think, A, it's very confusing, and yes, it's, all the things everybody said, but it makes us think about the end. And people don't, I don't think people in general like to think about that. Because it comes down to heaven or hell. I know you say it's not a black and white world, but it is. It ends in black and white. It ends in black and white. We're not in disagreement about that, Mark. So, but, but people don't, I don't think people like to think that. Right. They don't like to think, and they, maybe some people can't, I don't know, about where you end up. Which group are you in? What will happen? And I think that's the hardest thing for people to deal with. You know, everybody, a lot of people in the Catholic Church want to sing. It's all, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And let's go, all go to heaven. But uh, I don't think that's the case. And, you know, it's the way we look at it, right? If it's, if writings are very, anybody's writing, if it's like Revelation, which is hard to understand, right? It's not clear. It leads itself to interpretation, and I think most people will go to interpret it to the way they feel. Me included, right? You know, whatever you're inclined to think is, I think, where the interpretation is going to lead, no matter who it is. So, that's just my two cents. Yeah. Um, let me let me go back. Um, we why is do, are you all seeing each other? Because Mark came in and somebody disappeared. Do you see everybody who's in the class right now? Okay, because Tracy disappeared on my screen. Is she? You guys have her? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, let me let me add. Just try to add to what um, Fred was saying a minute ago. Um, my 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 own belief on this of the three positions. I 
you, you can break those down into subtler categories, but it's convenient to look at them that way. My own position is that the, that the, the richest one and the one that does the most justice to Revelation is the last one, the third one. And let me put it this way, just to pick up with what Fred was doing. It's a vision of end times. It's a vision of end times. But it includes, in the way that it's done it, everything in time. So even, even though John doesn't present the temporal world the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, or Dante, or no, Shakespeare, where we're actually dealing with concrete people in the world, we're getting end times. Um, but it's an end times that has brought time into itself. Um, and I, and I, I agree with Fred, or at least that's my understanding of this. Because it's end times, and I'm, what I started to say a minute ago, if all of you will just hold on to Boethius for a moment, because you remember, for those of you who read it, and I think read it well, um, there is no past or future for God, right? There's only a present. But all time is contained in him. So even if we think of something as belonging in the past, it doesn't have that same aspect for God. That requires that we do some adjusting in our head because we're, we're, time, we're corporeal creatures. We're in time. We tend to think in our bodies. That's a gift to us. That's our nature. We're not angels. People who want to escape their bodies are, are refusing a great gift. The book of Revelation is final times. We're given a vision of God and Christ from that perspective. So Mary will come into it, and we get all of these descriptions of these horror, these horrendous battles that take place repeatedly. And I, I happen to believe that what Fred said is, is, is a more accurate reading of Revelation, that it includes all time. Um, and I would say just in terms of the Bible, that even if we don't get wars going back, let's say to Troy. I, I see nothing in here going to Troy. And it's not because Troy doesn't matter. But it's a serious question for me, and I think for biblical scholars, when they talk about the wars, whether they're not referring to the Babylonian exile. That's an important way. And let me put this, let me put this differently. Because God called the Jews out. They're his chosen people. He had an end for them, a mission. And according to our understanding from Scripture, and that's Old Testament and New Testament, salvation waits on the Jews. It's still an open-ended question. What's going to happen? We don't know the answer to that. But that means that the most important events concerning the Jews are very much at issue here. So I'll mention two that come immediately to mind. It's not Troy or the fall of Rome, even though the fall of Rome may be figured. It's the Babylonian exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. Both of those things destroyed Jerusalem. It took away the temple. And there's lots of evidence to suggest when they're talking about these battles, particularly involving the Jews, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, that what they're talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem. And I'll, I want to back that up in a minute. I don't want to say that definitive, but what I'm saying is that I think there's a truth to the perspective that Fred just laid out. If we're looking at end times, and it's all of them, the greater focus will be on those things that God has done to call us out. And it's very clear from what he says that Christians are not living according to what he's asked of them. I'm going to go to the letters in a minute. There are lots of them who are lukewarm, who are not living out their lives, and God has warnings full of them. So I think, I think the reading is inclusive, Catholic. It's end times. It's all there. 
Rome is central, Jerusalem is central. Because they go more immediately to God's plan and his will. Okay? Now let me go to the let me go to the letters and then I'm gonna go to what I believe is the most important question for what we're doing here. It's what Fred wants and what all of us want. When when um, Revelation opens, John is told here, go to one nine. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So apparently he was a faithful Christian and he's being persecuted because of his faith. And as a punishment, he's been sent to this island. Okay, And it's here. Think about this. This is Boethian. It's here, facing punishment, that he's given this grace. He has this revelation. I was in the I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, um, Thatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Send it to those seven churches, okay? Now, I just want, I don't want to cover this because there's too much, but I want to briefly read through some of them, okay, just to give you a feel, just to keep the book concrete for us. Chapter 2, to the angel of church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars, sorry, hold on. Now, by the way, Christ himself has given us an exegetical principle, how to, how to interpret things. So we're not left completely in the dark. He says towards the end of one, um, he's described as having white hair and um, almost blinding in his whiteness. Um, in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining. And he says, now write what you see, because he brings, as he says, death and Hades. Here's, hold on, hold on, I've got a Doc, William, Doc, yes. we can hear it down here. Um, sorry, we've got two kids. Um, now write what you see, what is, what is to take place hereafter. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, and the seven churches are the lampstands. He's given us a symbolic equation. Okay? The stars are the angels of seven churches. The lampstands, the lampstands are the churches themselves. So he's already given us an interpretive answer, a help, at least initially for starting. So when we talk about the lampstands, we're, we're looking here, hold it. The lampstand, the lampstand is an image of a fire burning, a light alive. It represents a church. There's something there. Okay? And the, the angels, God's protective spirits, are watching over. He says now, say this to the churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, so, we've got an image of the Spirit watching over seven churches. 
here in this vision in heaven. Okay? With God and Christ in the midst of them. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, notice the word there is love, not knowledge. It's love. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. There was a time when you were fervent in your love. You're not anymore. You've gotten comfortable. You're not doing what you once did. By the way, Ephesus was one of the leading economic cities in that area. And so was um, um, the other two leading cities. Um, so um, he, he's showing the, the danger to a faith from its surrounding, particularly its economic surrounding, because those were economic centers. Um, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. I, that is, I will remove your light. The Spirit will not be given to you anymore. Your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I think what we know about them is that they were a schismatic group who, um, who um, support, endorsed eating, um, sacrifices to idols because that was forbidden to the Jews um, and other practices which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, that's Christ, I know your tribulation and your pov poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You will be persecuted. Um, I want to come back to this in a second. <clears throat> you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who conquers um, will not be hurt by the second death. Let me stop for a second. We've done this before. Remember when we were talking about the Gospels, if you read the book of Maccabees, you see the Jewish community <coughs> being persecuted by a Hellenized world. Alexander's conquered, the Greeks are in power, what we experienced in the Iliad and the Odyssey and Sophocles and all, um, Aeschylus and um, Sophocles, that whole Hellenic world um, has defined itself more and more in terms of power. It went into um, Jerusalem and force the Jews to worship their gods, Zeus, Dionysus, you know, all of them. And, the, and that's what makes up the book of Maccabees. The mother, remember, refused to do it, and so they refused to eat meat that would violate their law. And the, the Hellenized Greeks were saying, eat it or we're going to kill you. Remember, she went to her death willingly because she would not renounce that dietary law. 
and her seven sons went to death. Right now we're in a different situation. We're looking at a Jewish world that is persecuting Christians. Because for some of those Jews, what these Christians are doing is outrageous. It's turning from their faith. So the world is um, in, a, in a violent sort of position right now, historically at this time. And then he, he continues to go down the list of the churches. I want to stop. You know that we're going to get the seven churches, and then we're going to get the seven seals. Let me just touch on that, and then I want to I come back to this, um, this question of seven. Hold on for a second. Where do this... Um, turn to the beginning of four. He's given instructions on what to write to all the churches. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he will be, he will be with me. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. For after this I opened lo the heaven an open door, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. And now we get um, the seven seals. Six, the Vivian is six. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, the four gospels, say, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I saw, behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Just to make this brief. The seven seals, the first one, a rider on a white horse carrying a bow, like a conquered. The second, a rider on a red horse takes away peace. There's no more peace on the earth. Something has come to change everything. Rider on a black horse, holding a pair of scales. Rider on a pale horse, death in Hades. And he's putting claim um, to a fourth on, he's going to claim a fourth of the people in the world. Um, martyrs with a white robe, next. Earthquakes follow. The sun and moon go out practically. The last one is silence fills heaven for a half an hour before an angel hurls a censer at the earth. And that sets in motion the seven trumpets. And then we'll get the seven trumpets sounding the warning of God. Okay. Now before we go any farther, let me try to put some things together here. So God has sent letters, to warnings to all the seven churches. So the question seven is going to be real, but just hold on for a second. This is from the Old Testament. Okay, this is from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, God speaks of the latter end of Israel. Deuteronomy 31. When there would be a perverse and crooked generation. Um, Matthew, um, Luke, Philippians. He warned that on the generation he would avenge the blood of his servants. Um, and in Leviathan, or sorry, Leviticus 26, he warned that Israel would one day receive sevenfold 
judgment. So one of the things that people have to ask about the use of seven, when he refers to the destruction, is he talking about what was before, what is now, what will come? You, you know my own belief that he's including it all. Um, and, and I want to back that up in a second. But he talks about this um, sevenfold justice. In Leviticus, And after all this, if you do not obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Okay. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. That's in Leviticus. In Leviticus again, and if by these things you're not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. Now hold on to that notion of contrary. One thing and it's opposite. If you do not do this, this is what's going to happen. You're either going to have life or you will have not life, no life. And by these things you're not, um, if you, things you're not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Okay. Leviticus. I will bring on you seven times more plagues. These are things in the Old Testament. Here's where I wanted to go. In Matthew, in Matthew 21, um, Jesus horrifies the religious leaders. We went through this when we did Matthew. He shocks the religious leaders of um, his time because he talks about this catastrophe that's coming. Um, He tells them that the kingdom of God will be taken out of their hands and given to another nation. And if you look at my notes, you'll see that this was in um, Matthew that we read. This is one of the passages we read when... Um, Jesus had just accomplished something, and when he came back, the disciples were saying, make sense of this, explain it to us. This is Christ and the disciples. Tell us, they say, when all of this will happen, what sign will there be of your coming, of the end of the age? Jesus said, see that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and reports of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for these things must happen, but it will not be the end. So we, I mean, following up with Fred, and the, the, my explanation here is at least as nearly as I can make sense of it, we've got a final end time that covers the whole of time, and there are these wars constantly. There's a tendency among the Protestant mind to specify them, to identify a period, a millennium, a thousand-year period before a rapture. They even believe they can identify it by pointing to certain events. Christ is saying, If you hear of wars and reports of wars, see that you're not alarmed, for these things must happen, but it will not yet be the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be fam- famines, famines, earthquakes. Those happen in the, in the, re- in the seven seals and the things, earthquakes, famines. They will hand you over to persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And then many will be led into sin and they will betray and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many. 
And because of the increase of evil doing, the love of many will grow cold. How is that not what's being described in Revelation? But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nation, and then the end will come. When you see the desolation, abomination of spoken of through Daniel, um, you'll see. He gives, remember, you remember, he gives that example. A person on the housetop must not go down. He said two will be on the housetop, two in the field. Um, And then he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. How is that different from what's being described here? The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. Fig tree. Remember, it didn't produce. When its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer's near. In the same way, when you see all these things, know that he is near at the gates. Amen. I say to you, this generation will pass, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving, and marriage up to that day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So it will be the coming of man. Now here's my question. Um, well, wait, let me stop. So we're, we're being given this vision of final end times. It's an eschatological vision. It's of end times. But in it are these suggestions that, sh that leave us wondering if he's not referring to the all of time, all these things. But there's a clear focusing on um, Jerusalem. The Jews, Christ even warns the Jews that what was given to them will be taken away. And we know that Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. Um, that's after Christ. Um, we've got the seven seals, the warnings to the churches. Um, they get more and more serious. All of them are failing in some way. Christ is warning them to recover or to strengthen themselves in their faith. And then we get the seven trumpets. Next week when we meet, I'll, I'll take a little bit more time with the trumpets and the bowls just to, to get in the text. But here's my question right now, which seems to me the large question to help us. What does the number seven mean? God in the Old Testament says seven times worse, seven plagues. We've got warnings of this happening. The most important number, at least as I read it in the Revelation, is seven. The seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. They all lead up to this moment where Mary makes her appearance. There's this fight, the dragon comes in, and then we've got um, the defeat of Babylon and the coming of this new kingdom. But up until that time, everything's presented in terms of seven. Let me offer something right now, because to me, it's certainly helpful to me. I'm not sure how helpful it'll be for you, but it seems to me it explains a lot. You remember when we did Dante. Dante's vision was end times. It was eschatological. 
we were in hell or heaven. Purgatory was a final state in the sense that everybody in purgatory was headed to heaven. So we saw things from a final perspective. The black and white that Mark wants to remind us of. You know. And Dante does too. Because it's Dante's way of coming back into the world so those of us in the world can learn to see that what we do matters. That we've got to be careful of what we're doing here. Take seriously, serious care. But remember at the end of the Inferno, um, the last few cantos show people eating. We went through this. All of them are drinking with dealing with food. People overeating, people drinking. The last image, the last two major images of the Inferno was Ugolino chewing on the head of Regario. He was eating him. And the last image, final image of the of the Inferno was Satan, Satan eating on Brutus, Cassius, Judas. And I remember asking, why these feasting images at the end of the Inferno? Do you remember the answer? Why is it important? Mark, you should remember this. Why is that important? I do not. Somebody help out here, can you? It's crucial to what we're doing. I think, I think. It was the inverse of what Christ does for us. Yeah. Karen, flesh that out. Sorry for the pun here. So, flesh that uh, out some, can you? Christ feeds us with his body rather than consuming us, eating us. The converse would be that we go through our lives feeding on each other. So the grave danger, well, what we're asked to do with Christ. One of the reasons we take the Eucharist is that he offers himself, he says, I am the bread of life. That's that bread of life discourse. He who eats of me will have eternal life. He who drinks of my blood. Remember, that's what sent so many of the murmuring Jews away. They said, horrifying. You, we don't do these things. And they left. Those were his disciples. They left. That's a year before the Last Supper and the Copernican Synagogue. That's that bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. We take the Eucharist in us to participate in his sacrifice and we're asked to make that sacrifice to each other to offer ourselves sac self-sacrificially as life in Christ so the kingdom is expanding so if Christ is self-giving love what we would expect in the center of hell would be its exact opposite Does that have any bearing on what we're reading here in the book of Revelation? It's the exact opposite. Because we, in the readings, we've said the reading where God says, I will do the exact opposite. If you don't do this, do this. If you don't do this, I'll punish you seven times seven, send you seven plagues worse than ever before. <clears throat> what does the number seven represent? I always thought in um, <clears throat> Jewish history, seven was perfection. Yep. Here's my offering for whatever, everybody, if, if, and please just slow down for a minute. I mean, give it some thought. Don't jump on this. But Karen's right. The number seven was always understood to be a number of perfection. 
its opposite would be the ultimate opposite in punishments. That's why God said, seven, I'll send you seven plagues or seven times curses, or um, I'm going to do the opposite of you. <clears throat> so seven churches means what? Literally, we've got seven churches identified. I think what John is showing us, or the Spirit through him, if this is a prophecy, is he's talking about all the churches. It's not just these seven, it's everybody. It's all the churches, but we're, we're given warnings through these sevens. But I think it's meant to be all-encompassing. He's not just speaking to these seven churches, he's using them. But the number seven means everything, perfection, everything. And he's got a, um, a warning for each of them. But in that sense, I think he's speaking to everybody. Because it wasn't just churches in the East that, that Christ was concerned about or the Father was concerned about. The Was same thing, sorry, go ahead, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Karen, sorry. Was there one church that he didn't scold? Go ahead, I don't. Philadelphia, I think. You want to read it? No, read it. I have to find it, let's see. Um, chapter 3, verse 7. No, not verse 7. Um, yeah, it's 7. Go ahead. Read seven. it. Read it, Karen. Go ahead. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. The Holy One, the true, who holds the key of David, who opens and no one shall close, who closes and no one shall open, say this. I know your works. Behold, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. You have limited strength, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the assembly of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Behold, I will make them come and fall prostrate at your feet, and they will realize that I love you, because you have kept my message of endurance. I will keep you safe in the time of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming quickly, hold fast to what you have, so that no one may take your crown. So I, I didn't see Wait, keep going, there. keep going, yeah. The victor I will make into a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never leave it again. On him I will inscribe the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven for my God as well as my new name. Whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says yeah. to the churches. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Your your point, go ahead. Oh, my point was, most of them he said, either you used to be good and you've fallen away, or you're doing wicked things now, but I didn't see that in the um, yep. letter to Philadelphia. Yeah. It was kind of a recognition of, that they were keeping his word. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that it's Philadelphia. Yeah, love. Yeah, I mean, the brotherly love that it's a city. I mean, I, is that, I don't think, you know, talking about the symbolism of the work. It's interesting, too, that my reading has, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, because he's specifically calling out the Jews who are persecuting them, in, or in the translation that I have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we have this one church. Um, 
but I, I, the, the point that I want to make here is that I think seven um, means completeness. It's everybody. Um, it's not just the seven churches in these seven identified places. And I, I, it's a curious question about whether the fact that the, the one church in which people seem to be doing best is the one in Philadelphia, which is a city of love. Um, and I think the same thing could be said of the trumpets and the bulls and the seals. You know, the seven trumpets are the power of God. It's the complete power. Um, what he's doing is sending, he's giving conditions to offset the corruption of people. He's doing the same thing with the bulls, the trumpets, the seals. Um, so, um, it seems to me that the reason seven is so important is not an accident, it's not arbitrary. It's because if you if you take everything in the kingdom of, that John is looking at, the way he describes it with the perfection, 24 elders, the four you know, others, and you take it to the world, what you're seeing is an opposite condition. And so I think in some ways the seven implies its opposite in each one of those things for the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Um, it's just not an arbitrary number. It's, it's very allegorical, but at least it gives us a key for understanding the sense of opposites, that in God you have this life. Um, it, it, and it's interesting, it, it opens with these letters warning people not, not to slip in their faith, to, to persist and over and over again, he's scolding them for f slipping, falling away, becoming lukewarm, or even becoming corrupt. To persist, they are going to be persecuted. They're going to be facing trials. They're never not going to be doing it. They have, they have to hold on until he comes. And if they do, they will not suffer the second death. And I'm trusting you all know what's meant by the second death, because we did this with Dante. Do you, is everybody clear on what that second death is? What's the second death? Well, so the first death is the death of the body, and the second death is the death of the soul. Everybody here, Suzanne? Mm -hmm. We're all going to die one death. I mean, we're all going to die mortally here. The serious concern for us is whether we will have a second death, whether our immortal soul. Um, will suffer that second death. That's the condition that Dante showed us in hell. It's a condition of final loss. <clears throat> um, let me stop. Any thoughts about the letters or the seals? We haven't done the trumpets or the bulls. I'd like to, what I'd like to do is try to, with all of this background behind us now, I'd like to I'd like to look a little bit more closely at the trumpets and the bulls. Why trumpets? Why bulls? What happens in that battle in heaven? And finally, what happens with the coming of that new city? And the way the um, revelation ends with the bride saying, come, come, and Christ coming. Um, it's a very, very dark book. It's all about destruction. The, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls until you get to the end, and then there's this glorious picture of a, 
of a bridegroom and a bride. So that so that to put it as as best I can. However dark Christ's warnings were, and they were stern in the Gospels, however dark Revelation is, the Bible itself ends on this extraordinary affirmative note. The Bible ends with Christ coming and the bridegroom saying, Come, come. It's a wonderful ending to the Bible, and I'm sorry we don't give it the attention I think it deserves. Um, it's a beautiful. It, it's, it's, um, I think it's one of the reasons Pope John did the work he did, Pope John Paul. It's spousal. It's a marriage between Christ and his church, which means Christ and all of us. It's a marriage. And in some ways, it's an example of what a marriage should be. It should be self-giving, self-offering. But holding to Christ, not, not giving in to this stuff that he talks about in the letters and that he makes clear what the punishments are for in the, in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. The letters make clear the temptations the churches face, what, what they have to deal with. There are going to be tribulations, there are going to be trials. Um, people are not going to escape them. The question is, how firmly will they hold to Christ? And that's we'll get all those warnings and the trumpets and the, the seals and the trumpets. Well, let me stop. Any questions about what I would really like everybody to do is hold on to that structure that I gave everybody. Because it's amazing if you just take the opening, the letters, and then the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls up to that, that battle in heaven when Michael and the devil fight and a third of a third of the stars are cast down. You can see a movement to that point. He's showing, in a sense, if I can put it this way, he's showing that all, all history is providential. It's all going to that moment when, when Christ enters the world through Mary, that everything in history, all of its battles are pointing toward, every battle is explained by that moment, that battle in heaven. That's why, why Milton did Paradise Lost the way he did. All battles point, they all imply that one battle. And out of that battle came the end of Revelation. A new city coming out of the earth, God in all of his glory, Christ calling to his bride, and the bride saying, come, come. Bridegroom. The bride. Um, that, I, I just, I mean, I, if everybody holds on to that, at least it gives us a handle. So with all of the confusion and all the complexity, we have a way of holding on to things to, to help. We can look more deeply at each thing, but at least to see the whole and how the parts fit should help us get through some of the confusion and um, begin to deal with some of the symbols and what they all mean concretely and things like that. Let me stop. Any, any final comments or observations or questions or... I have a question. You started out talking about um, covering the two encyclicals with Elizabeth Ann Seton. Yeah. Do you have dates and times? We're starting on the 22nd, a week from tomorrow. So they they meet on Tuesdays? 
Tuesday night. We, we, it was always been a Monday, Tuesday. They've always been on Tuesday. We're going to meet, except now we're going back to class. We're going to go into, we're going to do both. We're going to be in class and doing virtual so that people who are far away uh-huh. can join us. So we'll start with Pope John Paul's Fide Orazio. It's a wonderful, just a wonderful affirmation of education. It's the Pope saying, wake up Catholics. Um, we, we're on a journey here to learn. The, most imp- he, the point he's making is the most important thing we can do is keep learning to grow in our faith. And, so what, uh, sorry, what time of the eight Tuesdays from when to when? 6.30 to 8.30, same, same class time. Okay, because I don't, I don't think we have their link. It's, it's the, the same. same link, is it? Same link. Oh, is it same link? Yeah, you? you just come out on Tuesday nights. It's, you still do the same thing. Okay. Anybody can come. You can tell, you can, they, anybody's been able to join you guys, and anybody's been able to join them. Okay. Anyway, Thanks. if you come, it would be good to see you, Karen, or anybody else. It, there's some real, you would enjoy the people, and they would enjoy you. It's just a really good group. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, our hope is that Father's advertising it in the parish and that more parishioners will become involved because we're doing the encyclicals. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know how that first class is going to go or who's going to be there or what's going to happen. It's going to be a surprise. Anyway, I'm glad you asked. And by the way, even if you guys can't come, I, I would so encourage, if you have not read Fide Orazio, and if you have not read Benedict's Regensburg Address, you just do not know what you're missing. Benedict turned half the world against him in that address. The Muslim world attacked him openly for a long time. The Christian fundamentalist world went after him. He, he just unsettled half the world. It was a, it, it's one of the reasons why it was such an... He, he had the courage. He had the courage to do something really hard and did it. Um, so if you've not read either of those works, you really should. Fide Orazio is John Paul, and, and go online. I, I'll send you guys the... Didn't I send you? Didn't I send you the links? I thought I did. I'll send you guys the links. I'll send you the links for both books. Fide Orazio is not long. It's an encyclical. Um, John or Benedict's article is. Um, it's an address, so it's relatively short. Anyway, any any last questions or comments on? the book of Revelation and what's going on. It's a wonderful, it's a prophecy. It's, it's, it belongs with the Gospels. It, it finishes the Bible. It's, it's showing us end times and how they apply to every moment in our lives, day to day to day to day. That we've got to see our day to day activities in light of that final vision. Anyway, okay, um, so we'll try to finish it next week, see how, see how well we do, or how well I do. We, we'll either finish it next week or the week after, but if we manage to finish it, we'll take a, um, a month break, um, read Great Expectations. It's a, it's a wonderful book. It's a, it's a really good book. And Pride Prejudice, don't just... Don't watch Mark when I mention that word because he's Pride and Prejudice is a, is a, it's a by the way just so you know this is long before you know I got more and more fully into my church 
I, I, I hope I see Jane. I, I hope I'm in heaven. I, I hope I get there. And I hope I see her because I want to thank her because she's, she's the first writer. I'm saying this really. She gave me my eyes. She, she helped me to see the possibilities of a domestic. It's really interesting, the, the domestic life. And let me make a note on that. Sorry. If you read the men in the 19th century, Dickens, Thackeray, um, Trollope, you know, all those men, they're writing about a community and city and, you know, marriages get in. If you read the women, Jane Eyre, Jane Austen, George Eliot, they, they get into domestic life far more completely than men. They really get into the inner beings of domestic life and marriages far more than men. And um, I, I was saying that seriously. I, Jane Austen gave me eyes. I mean, she really made me realize what goes on in marriages um, in a way that the men never showed me. So Pride and Prejudice is a great, great work. It, it, um, there's nothing about God in it. I mean, you're not going to find God moving around it, like the way, the way you do in uh, Dostoevsky. God's not present in that work, but on a domestic level, what she shows us about the relationships between men and women, um, she got that. She got that from Shakespeare. That's my claim. She could not have done that without Shakespeare. Anyway, um, we'll take a break. Um, those of you who'd like, read Great Expectations. It's a great work, and Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. You guys, um, good to see you all again. Stay safe. Um, stay healthy. Barbara, join us. Join us. You weren't here, but she, she's been oh. coughing some. You join us. Come up front. Hopefully, um, I don't. I won't need to. But thank you. But if if you do, you've got all that open space between us and the altar. You can cough all you want. <laughs> okay. We're, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna get up and move. Okay. See you guys. You guys yeah. have a good week. Bye bye.